Hey guys, God's hot here. Can you hear me? Just give me a thumbs up or something just to make sure that I'm doing this right. Okay. Uh, guys, don't forget these live chats have super chat options. If you wish to, uh, uh, thank you, Kyle, for uh, the confirmation of hear you. I just decided to do this off the top of my head. I don't know if we'll get any people. We only have 19 so far. Uh, hopefully we can get a couple of hundred if you wish for me to uh, answer any of your questions. Super chat me, super tip me, super something. Remember, time is money. I love to connect with my fans, but I also uh, hopefully get some kind of uh, uh, support from you guys. It's God sad. God is with uh, one A, G-A-D. All right. Who's going to start us off with a super chat? I'm not answering any questions if I don't see super chats. 28 people, 36 people. Let's get it to a couple of hundred people. Salam, my brother. How you doing? What's up? Have you ever talked to academic theists? I'm not seeing super chat. It's all blind to me. 41 people. Hello from Bosnia and Herzegovina. Look at that. I love it. Uh... Do you think oh, bet, 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 bet. who's going to start us off with a super chat? I'm not seeing super chats. Was 9-11 an inside job? It's a pleasure. Hello from Salt Lake City. We got Salt Lake City. We've got uh, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. Who else? Where are you? Hello from Lebanon. Look at that. All right, guys, we got 48 people. This was completely impromptu. I made no uh calls i made no uh, oh we got our first super chat from uh, uh donation thank you dan o'flaherty here's my prediction homosexuality is animals in animals will be labeled as transphobic because we can't tell if animals identify with their sex exactly right by the way uh i've coined all sorts of really cool uh new disorder or not disorders but conditions there's transphobia by proxy. So, for example, if, you, if you're a man and you have sex with another man, you can by proxy identify the other person as being female, in which case you're actually engaging in heterosexual mating, even though the other person is male, but you have self-identified them as uh, female. So that's called transgenderism by proxy. So there you go. Thank you. George. Kamajian. Oh, I think we we you might have been in a previous uh, chat. We have 71 people. I need more people, pe people. Uh, Shalom and inshallah, Rabbi Saad. Hello from sunny Tampa Bay. You know what? I love the west coast of uh, uh, Florida, Tampa Bay, Clearwater, Naples. Uh, I, I've discovered Fort Myers for the first time. Myers or Meyer? I can't remember if it's with an S or not and naples on a recent trip so really really fun uh move here we have a healthy mix of the rich ignorant redneck. believe me uh mr kamajian i am desperate to move out of quebec you can't imagine how badly again i don't want to bore you probably for the fourth uh time this is the fourth uh ask me anything uh clip that i'm doing uh the taxes here have been unbelievable this book has been completely stolen from me in terms of my book royalties i'm desperate to leave uh, and hopefully inshallah one day george will be uh, seeing one another in the beautiful golden coast of west florida okay let's move on 
Alan Zim Zimmelman. I have no question, just enjoy your contact. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Z Zibelman. I really appreciate that. Elon Tusk, not Elon Musk. Had it been Elon Musk, then it would, instead of your very lovely donation, it would have been with many more zeros. Hello from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I'm assuming. Looking forward to more juggling videos on your Twitter feed. You like that, huh? Uh, let me tell you, I tried to play soccer uh, with my uh, kids. I have two young kids, and they, they play behind the school every Sunday just to pick up game. And all the skills were still there. Uh, but my goodness, it took me about a week to recover after having played. And this wasn't exactly high-powered soccer. It was with a bunch of kids and a bunch of parents, and yet my body couldn't handle it. So, uh, yeah, get ready for some more uh, soccer skills coming up. Uh, we have here, let me see if I'm missing anyone. Okay, so Elon Tusk, we covered. Bill Farty, thoughts on the Depp Heard trial? Well, I haven't really followed it very closely. Uh, I did discuss it very briefly on my most recent uh, appearance with Joe Rogan. Uh, I don't know much about it, but what I can just reiterate what I said on the Joe Rogan's show. Uh, they 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 strike me as you know the 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 perfectly most ill-suited people to be together. He's the older guy who's you know aging, who meets up with this beautiful young woman who's probably quite adept at getting men to be jealous. Uh, she's probably triggering that. He's insecure. He's possessive. He starts getting, uh, you know, abusive with her. She's a narcissistic person. So you put it all together. Uh, you know, these two people should have never met. They should have probably never, I think they're married. They shouldn't have never been married. I don't know what else to say about it. Don't know much about it. So I can't tell you much more. Uh, who else we have? Okay, guys, I've covered everybody. Alan Zibelman, we've covered George Kamajian. Let's keep the super chats going. 92 people. You in the previous times that I've done this, uh, we got over well over you know several hundred. I know that I should be promoting it and so on, but I'm just kind of an impulsive guy. I just go where the wind takes me. I didn't feel like working anymore on the book today. I was tired, and so I said, you know what, let me just open it up to the friends, to the fans, and see what we get. All right, who else we got here? Let's see. Uh, Bill Farty, we covered. Bartolome Esteban Murillo. How are you, sir? Good afternoon, Dr. Sad. A question. Does a high-status male possess only monetary status or could an alpha male with, with a working-class job be considered high-status? Excellent question. Uh, there are So here's the universe. I talk about this actually in uh, this book, if memory serves me right. It was in the evolutionary basis of consumption. So I talk about the fact that the universal imperative is for men to seek and obtain high status but the way that we go about achieving it will vary across individuals will vary across cultures so in one culture it might be whether i have an ivy league uh, degree uh, it might be how many zeros i have in the bank account it, it might be if i'm in the hadza tribe in africa how many cattle's uh, heads of cattle i own uh, it, i could become a high status guy by being a uh, dot-com billionaire. I could become a diplomat or a surgeon or a uh, very funny stand-up comic. So there are many paths by which I can achieve high status. So, so it's not only through wealth. It's not only through occupational prestige. And so you can certainly have, you know, a working class person. Take, for example, Joe Rogan. So by the metrics by which we judge uh, social class, he wouldn't be considered 
high class. And yet, of course, he has attained the highest of status. He's one of the most famous people in the world. He has the number one show in the world. He's got tons of money. And so, no, I don't think that the only path to high status is through the, the, the usual means, right? As a matter of fact, by definition, you could be very wealthy and score low on social status. So, for example, a neurosurgery resident who makes $50,000 will be ranked as higher social status than someone who makes $80 million uh, being an actor. And so, no, there are many paths to social status. What you certainly need to do in all of those cases is to have ambition, to have drive, to be assertive. So women will be oftentimes very attracted to guys who are starving artists who don't have any money. But what they are banking on is that their path of ascendancy is going to be somewhere good. They're going to become the famous rock star because they work hard, because they've got talent. And so to summarize my, my answer, uh, Mr. Murillo, uh, no, you don't have to only be through monetary status or through occupational status. There are many paths to ascend the social hierarchy. Okay, next we got o Oana. Let me get to her next. Hold on a second. Where is she? Thank you for your lessons on the importance of honor. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that. It's something we don't hear often these days. Also, thank you for sharing your stories from your childhood. My family shares much with you. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate it. Uh, I'm, are you, I'm not sure if you're also from Lebanon, uh, you know, but uh, thank you. I really appreciate your kind words. Uh, Happy Pride Month. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, George Kamijian is back. Happy Pride Month. I remember to change <laughs> remember to change your gender fluid every three to five thousand transitions for optimal performance. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we'll do that. By the way, I discussed exactly these kinds of issues. Okay, we're up to 142 people. I am offended. Why isn't that number 1,142? Why isn't it 11,420? I understand that I'm only doing this impromptu, zero promotion, on the spirit of the moment, but we need to get those numbers up. Uh, okay, so, uh, yeah, so uh, during um, my uh, testimony in uh, the Canadian Senate in 2017, I talked about uh, Harvard University arguing that, you know, they no longer... Uh, uh, you know, they don't support the promulgation of fixed antiquated binaries, meaning male and female, and that it is absolutely the case that one's gender identity is fluid within an individual, right? So it's not that there are many genders, it's that the same individual can have multiple uh, manifestations of gender identity depending on the day. So Monday, I am this, Tuesday, I am that. And that wasn't satirical, that was true. And I had spoken about that. And here we are today. It is accepted wisdom. So thank you for that, uh, Mr. George. Moving on to insight of the ages. Talk about how power corrupts. Oh my goodness, that's I, I need I need five hours for that. Of course, power corrupts. People become orgiastically intoxicated with the thrill of ruling over others. This is what happens with governments. I mean, think about all of the. Uh, haphazard COVID rules that came about. You you can't walk your dog after 10 o'clock on a deserted neighborhood street. There is really absolutely no conceivable, rational, scientific, logical mechanism by which one can arrive to such a rule. 
but my God, is it orgiastically pleasurable for me, the head of the government, to tell all the little great unwashed plebs, no walking your dog after 10. So power is uh, is something, of course, that people seek. Uh, the ones who are truly virtu virtuous can attain power and not misuse it. Uh, but for most people, if they attain a position of power, regrettably, the dark elements of their hearts take over. So thank you for that question, uh, Insight of the Ages. Steve Brake. Let's move on to Steve Brake. Where are you? Uh, here we go. Thank you. Well, thank you. You're very kind. Didn't even ask a question. I truly appreciate that. 184 people. I need that number to beat at least 500. Go out there. Tweet to your friends. Tell them to come to this chat. I'm not sure how long we'll go for today. Uh, my first three chats, or not chats, live streams went for two hours each. Maybe we'll do the same today. Let's see. Uh, all right. Let's move on to the next person. Chad Self. Gad, since you are such a sexy man, I would have preferred if you said very immeasurably sexy man, but I'll take that compliment. Gad, since you're such a sexy man, sometimes I refer to you as the Lebanese salami. I hope you approve of the nickname. I hereby, I am christening you, even though I'm not Christian. I hereby approve of that message or of that nickname. Thank you very much, Chad Self. Moving on to, hold on a second. Who do we got here? Okay. Chad Self. Oh, let's rock. Let's with LTZ. What do you think about the Bill 96 situation in Quebec? What is your opinion on it? Has the infinitely wise sage Justin Trudeau weighed in? Yes, you're absolutely right that Justin Trudeau is arguably the most intelligent and wise person alive today, if not ever in history. His infinite capacity to move his mouth while saying absolutely nothing is simply breathtaking. Uh, so let's forget about uh, Justin. Uh, Bill 96, for those of you who don't know, uh, it's part of an ongoing you know, efforts of the Quebec government to institute laws that seek to protect the, the French language and the French heritage. The idea being that Quebec is this very you know, small community within this big ogre, nasty monster called the English language. And to the extent that Quebec is a distinct society, it wants to protect its heritage. It wants to protect its language. And therefore, going back now more than 40 years, they've tried to institute laws that try to do that. But in doing so, they truly violate personal liberties. But of course, they're consequentialist in their ethics. It's okay if we impose draconian laws because the consequences are that we wish to protect our language. So Bill 96 basically is making it a lot harder for uh, students who finish high school and are going to what we call CJEP, which is a two-year degree prior to going to university. Uh, they're making it a lot harder. They're forcing everybody to go to French colleges. Uh, what do I think of it? I think it's horrible. I don't think that you legislate the protection of a culture. Cultures either are you know, created or flourish or die as a result of you know, natural processes to impose draconian, illiberal rules and laws in order to protect your culture is never the way to go. So I'm against it. Now, I'm protected in the sense that in Quebec, if you... If one of if your parents were educated in English, then they pass that right to you. So in my case, when we came from Lebanon, because my mother had studied in Lebanon at an English uh, school, that 
gave me the right to attend English school, which then I pass on that right to my children. So imagine that you have to use this kind of genealogical, you know, baton to transfer the right for you to study in whichever language you want. It's insane. I'm against it. And by the way, even though I'm fluent in French, I, as a matter of fact, I learned French before I learned English. So it's not as though I am hostile to the French French language. I, I love the French language. Uh, but, you know, being a, a libertarian, uh, at least in terms of, you know, all these governmental intrusions, uh, I think Bill 96 is a bunch of doo-doo. Uh, Sid Dave, I'm so happy Johnny Depp won. Victory for abused men worldwide. Amber, Amber Heard is a fraud and a great message by jury to... Hashtag me too frauds. Okay. The other person had asked me about the trial. I didn't even know that he had that the, the verdict had come. So I'm just finding out now that apparently he's won. We're at 192. I better see a couple of more hundred people. Contact your friends. Dr. Gad Saad, the hero that we don't deserve, is right now, right here with you. Go get me some more people. Uh well, you know, as I said, I don't know enough about the story. I do get the sense that. At least certainly that's what Joe Rogan told me that, uh, you know, Johnny Depp is quite a lovely guy, you know, poetic, romantic guy. She does seem like she's quite creepy. So based on these very superficial cues, uh, it does seem that maybe justice was served, but I really can't comment on it. I don't know enough about it. George Kamajian is back. Wow. Thank you so much for your uh, donation, George. Uh, let me go back and find you. I It, it, it kind of goes down. Yeah. To second what someone else in chat mentioned, have you looked at the recently deceased Kevin Samuels and his content effort to help correct the black community in the USA? If not, you should. I don't know who Kevin Samuels is. Uh, no clue who that is. Uh, so I, could, I couldn't comment on it, but I'll certainly keep it in mind and I, I will look into it. Uh, so thank you for that. Abhishek Badoria. Hello, sir, from India. I'm going to start my MBA next month. Interested in marketing. Any tips for college or books? recommended well it's a broad question do you mean books in marketing do you mean books in psychology do you mean books in evolutionary psychology do you mean books in evolutionary consumer psychology so i don't know what you mean uh it really depends on let's presume that you're only asking about marketing it really depends on which areas of marketing you're interested in right uh uh you know industrial marketing is very different from uh, business to business marketing well i guess that's industrial marketing different from consumer marketing different from uh, social marketing different from digital marketing so i don't really have a good sense for you but i have a, maybe a more general uh, advice for you rather than specific books to read a lot of times uh, regrettably so many mba students pursue the mba because they're doing it for extrinsic reasons you know it it will it will help me improve my career uh you know it's nice to have mba after my name it's it's nice to put on my business card and so people are doing it not for the you know most pure of reasons which should be intrinsic reasons i i really want to learn about business i want to learn about managerial psychology and about uh, you know, behavioral finance and about entrepreneurship and about managerial accounting and about uh, consumer psychology. There are all sorts of fascinating disciplines within uh, the business. And so what I would, you know, implore you to do is really put into the MBA what what you really should, which is to pursue it for intrinsic reasons. Yes, the outcome will be that you'll have a, a nice, valuable degree, but you shouldn't be pursuing it for that reason. You should be pursuing it for self-growth. So take the degree seriously. 
take hard courses. Don't take courses how to love and cherish your employee and this kind of bullshit. Take courses that you otherwise wouldn't be able to learn about if it weren't in university. Take take data analytic courses. Take multivariate statistics courses. Take serious courses that teach you real, relevant, uh, and powerful uh, tools that you can use use in your business uh, career. So, you know, I would stay away from the fuzzy wuzzy courses. I would take courses that really. Uh, as I said, you would never have an opportunity to learn about if you weren't pursuing your MBA. So good luck with your MBA, Abhishek, and thank you for your contribution. Okay, moving on, looking down. Pat Monet, you recently met with Dr. Peterson. How is he doing amidst his Sports Illustrated debacle and subsequent hiatus from Twitter? Oh, yes, thank you for asking about this. Uh, Jordan and I met last uh, Monday, so that would be nine years ago. He invited uh, my wife and I out with his wife uh, to, and there was one other person that came. Uh, he invited us out to dinner at a, uh, you know, I think three, 400 year old steakhouse in Montreal. So we first went to dinner. And then after that, he invited us um, to his show and then backstage. Uh, he's doing well. He's looking great. He's in good spirits. Uh, you know, he's lovely. We had, uh, you know, really nice time, connected. Uh, his wife is doing really well. She had some health issues, which she seems to have, uh, you know, overcome. So I was very happy about that. Uh, yeah, I even meant his, uh, you know, he has, he has this whole security detail with him and so on. So it was, uh, it was always nice to see Jordan. He's doing well. And uh, I'm sure he sends his love to all of you. So thank you for that question, Mr. Monette. Moving on. Michael Arturo, I think I might have remember you from uh, the past. <laughs> is, is Trudeau transitioning? Serious question. Meaning that I'm, I'm guessing you mean that his 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 features are changing. Uh, I don't think that he is transitioning because he is already the height of femininity. So if he's transitioning, it's to su- you know a super normal stimulus of femininity. You know, I I had the Megan Kelly uh, on my show last uh, September, I think. She, you know, she's she's such a smart woman, and uh, I hope my my wife won't mind me saying this. A very very beautiful and alluring woman, and uh, we talked on the show about Justin Trudeau. You should go back and watch it. It was on my channel, probably. I'm gonna say September 2021. Just do Megan Kelly, enter on my channel and you'll find it. And at one point she said she was repulsed at the idea of anybody, you know, any woman finding him sexually attractive. And that's when I knew that I really loved Megan Kelly. I mean, I already knew I loved her, but loved her even more because in my mind, no real visceral woman can look at this guy and say, mm, I want some of that. He's a girl. So I don't know if he's transitioning or not, but he certainly is a lady. Okay, Andrew, let's move on to Andrew. Thank you very much for your donation. When will, when, where will you move to the United States? We need you here and bring Dr. Peterson too. Thanks. Look, uh, I appreciate the question. The difficulty for me is that it's never, it's always very hard to pick up and leave when you are a tenured professor, a full professor. I used to be a chaired professor for many years. You know, I spent 30 years, almost 30 years building this career. I have a research lab. I have graduate students. I'm tenured. So it's not easy to just pack and leave. Uh, Plus, we have 
you know, pretty young children, you know, if I didn't, you know, if I had children who were fully grown up, who weren't uh, relying on me, then again, it would be a lot easier for my wife and I to simply pack our bags and take the risks that we need to take. So we certainly have started the process of looking into other options, including, for example, getting what's called an extraordinary visa to the United States. This is a special visa that you, if you, if you fit certain criteria, you know, you're a Grammy winner, you're an Oscar winner, you're an Olympian, you're a, you know, well-known professor, uh, you're a best-selling author, you can apply for this unique track for a visa. And so we're looking at that. What's good about that visa is that it doesn't link you to any employment. You, you don't have to you don't have to get a job in the U.S. to get that visa. So we're looking at different things. Uh, we we certainly uh, are desperate to leave Quebec. Number one, the weather doesn't agree with us. As we get older, it's not really fun. Number two, as I've told you all, uh, and believe me, it's almost been a month. I still walk around in the days. I still walk around with this deep anger, this deep sense of injustice that, you know, more than 50% of my books world books royalties have, have have been stolen. I mean, literally stolen. Uh, so we we are looking at leaving. Don't know when it's going to happen. Where would we go to? Uh, we are very much Southern California people in that we, you know, we've lived there. I was a professor at UC Irvine. I've had family there for 35 plus years. You know, it's like a second home to me. But given the tax situation, the woke stuff and all that, of course, the usual places would be Texas and Florida. So those are certainly places we're looking at. A few weeks ago, I came back from University of Texas, Austin, where, Austin, where I give two talks. I met with the president of University of Austin. So there are all sorts of possibility breweries brewing. I'll uh, keep you guys informed, but we'll see. Uh, but I certainly don't want to be here in 10 years telling you, oh my God, I regret that I never left. There are many great things about Montreal. There are many great things about my university but there are also some real difficulties. Uh, having 60, 70% of your net income stolen from you after all the taxes are added up is basically just slavery. I'm just a slave who's allowed to keep 30% of my income. This is no way to build a fair and just society. Thank you, Andrew. Let's move on. Oflameo. Uh, oh, sorry, there's a lot of people here so i don't want to make sure i don't miss anybody let me go back oflameo professor gad has anyone studied why women throw themselves at abusive men going as far as dating their rapists and seeking replacement abusers after the relationship ends therefore driving rape culture there's a lot of stuff to unpack there uh i think there are a couple of mechanisms so part of the attraction to abusive men so it depends if you mean going with a dangerous guy so for example you've got these uh penitentiary romances where these women become infatuated and in love with like these ridiculous killers these serial killers so i don't know if that's what you mean or whether you mean they're in a relationship their men start to abuse them and yet they stay in these relationships those are two different situations with two different mechanisms but generally speaking you know if i can give just a, a quick response there, there are two things I think that are at play here. Number one, uh, women are attracted to the bad boy, but as long as then the bad boy can be tamed, right? So there is an element of, of you know, high testosterone, of, you know, alpha maleness, if you'd like, in being a bad boy. And so I'm attracted to that. I'm, I'm not attracted to kind of the wimpy, 
you know, suck your thumb and cry in a fetal position in a corner. Women are not usually fantasizing about that. So being a bad boy is nice. But then the hope is that then I can tame you by my good love. I'm speaking now as the woman who's attracted to the bad boy. And so I think what happens oftentimes with women who stick around with the abusive guys is that they originally were attracted to the fact that oftentimes those guys have you know a lot of social dominance and so on. And then they think that they can change them, that, you know, this was just a mistake. This, you know, I'll never do it again uh, and so on. So you then get caught up in this vicious cycle where the abusive guy comes back to you, begs you for forgiveness. I'll never do it again. But then he does it again and on and on and on. So there are several reasons why women persist in such relationships, but it's, it almost never ends well. Once a guy has demonstrated the capacity to abuse a woman, uh, he doesn't suddenly become Valentino. It's only going to go downhill in most instances. Thank you for that question, Oflameo. Moving on, Patrick Leclerc. Hi, Gad. My ex-girlfriend, eight years, was a gender studies student at C. I don't know what C is. I don't know if that's Concordia. For my PhD thesis in history, they suggest pick a topic that you know. I know about wokeism. Good idea for PhD thesis in history. Well, I, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it would take a while for, for me to unpack all the, so here's the first thing that comes to mind. What wokeism, if you like, because if you want to study it from a historical perspective, many of the idea pathogens that I describe in the parasitic mind are, are exactly the idea pathogens that led to wokeism. But wokeism is something that is uh, relevant today. But if we want to do a look at history, well, whereas we may not have had wokeism, we've had other forms of departures from rationality, right? And, and actually, I've often been asked that question whenever I, I give talks about the parasitic mind. You know, people say, is this the first instance in history where we've seen this kind of, you know, departure from reason? And of course, my answer is no, right? So the, the human the human mind's capacity to be parasitized by stupidity and imbecility is not something that is common to today's era. What is unique to today's era are the specific idea pathogens that are parasitizing human minds. But, you know, Lysenkoism in the 20th century in the Soviet Union was an insane idea, right? It was an idea of a genetic theory that was rooted in Marxism, and then it led to the death of millions of people through starvation. So I think one thing you can do perhaps for a, a PhD dissertation, and if you do, I better get a shout out, uh, do a historical analysis of these uh, idea pathogens, right? So you could, you could pick different time periods and study what was the zeitgeist within that time period that allowed a particular set of idea pathogens to proliferate proliferate. So, and by the way, what I just did here, right? You just gave me one sentence, PhD in history in wokeism, and I right away generated a possible dissertation topic. That comes from the fact of having been trained for, I mean, part of it, of course, is just, you know, my innate uh, talent at doing this, but it also comes from having been a academic for almost 30 years that I can very quickly generate research topics and research ideas and hypotheses. And this is what I, by the way, do in all of my courses that I teach, my undergraduate course and on the consuming instinct, 
in my MBA course in, in consumer behavior, in my MS and PhD courses in psychology of decision-making and consumer psychology and evolutionary consumer behavior. I always make all the students do a project, a research project, a, a semester-long project where they have to identify a research topic, posit hypotheses, you know, conduct the literature review, develop the, the data collection procedure, analyze the data, and then uh, arrive at conclusions. So basically, they're doing an entire thesis, but they're doing it in the context of my course. And the reason why I do that is because I want them to learn how to identify a, you know, valuable, a, a sexy, and interesting research topic, and then see it through all the way to its conclusion. So I hope that's helped you, Mr. Leclerc, and uh, good luck with your uh, dissertation. By the way, I just recently had arguably the most eminent historian today, alive today, uh, Neil Ferguson, who's a uh, a fellow at the Hoover Institution. He was just on my show. You might want to check that out. I think you enjoyed. And a couple of months ago, I had another very famous historian, Victor Davis Hansen, who's also a Hoover Institution fellow. Check check our conversations. Unbelievable. William Albert. Oh my goodness! Thank you so much for this incredibly uh, generous the. Today's number one super chat donation. Please keep those super chat donations coming if you want me to answer your questions. Uh, we have 240, uh, 239 people now. Let's get it up to over 300. Again, this is not too bad for a completely impromptu uh, ask me anything. So here's William Albert. You're my favorite gadfly. Well, thank you, sir. That's very kind of you. Thanks for helping me understand what's going on. The woke have made inroads into the HR department where I work, I'm not surprised that they have. I'm, I'm surprised that it took this long for them to make their way to your HR department. HR is is some of the, 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 the worst ecosystem for this utter cancerous bullshit. Uh, and so my deep condolences at hearing of this reality, Mr. Albert, but hopefully many of us are pushing back against this nonsense. And inshallah, one day soon, we won't have to be talking about all of these woke ideas. All right, moving on. Uh, Isidoro Lombroso, thank you so much for your very, very kind uh, Super Chat donation, sir. Thank you from San Diego. I officially hate you. Why do I officially hate you? Because you're in Southern California, and I'm not in Southern California. I always tell people there is one thing that will make me envious of you, and that is if your postal code is in Southern California while I languish in the frozen tundra being gang raped by the tax authorities. Thank you very much, Isadoro. Enjoy Southern, uh, Southern California. Enjoy San Diego. I actually know San Diego very well. Uh, I went, you know, when, when, when we lived in Newport Beach uh, and even every summer we'd go back to California, Southern California, we always end up going down to visit Southern California, uh, to visit San Diego uh, several weekends. And so I, I love the city. It's such a gorgeous town. So, you're lucky, sir. All right, moving on. Uh, Sean Boda, thank you very much for your contribution. Does, mo does modern feminist philosophy suffer from a no true Scotsman fallacy? I'm not sure how you're linking these. A no true Scotsman fallacy is, is actually a, a, cognitive of, a cognitive fallacy that I discuss in the parasitic mind in uh, chapter six when I talk about ostrich parasitic syndrome. It's where you say, oh, but, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, they're not real uh, Muslims. Oh, Iran, that's not true Islam. Oh, uh, uh, Karadawi, the, the top Sunni cleric in the world, well, he's not a true Muslim. Oh, Osama bin Laden, he's no true Muslim. 
uh, oh, the head of ISIS, he's no true Muslim. But my friend Ahmad, who is gay and eats prosciutto and drinks cognac, he's the true definition of Islam. So the no true Scotsman fallacy is exactly that, where any exemplar that I give you of a particular category, you say, no, 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 this is not representative of it. So does modern feminist philosophy suffer from a no? So I'm guessing what you mean is that some other feminists will say that that's not a real representation of true feminism. Uh, I don't doubt that that's probably happening. So I suppose yes. All right, moving on. Ro King, thank you so much. No question, no comments, just a lovely donation. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. 238 people. That's fantastic. But why isn't it 2,380? I, I guess, I, I think what I'm finding out here is that I truly have to promote these several days in advance so that people can prepare and come with their fantastic questions. Uh, a nice book. Thank you for your contribution. Thank you, exclamation point. I love the parasitic mind. What autobiograph uh, autobiographies would you find valuable to read and what books complement the parasitic mind? Well, great question. Uh, I recently did a sad truth clip on my channel where I specifically did, and uh, not, sorry, not autobiographies, but biographies of various great uh, folks and a few not so great, you know, uh, Maimonides and Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein and uh, Charles Darwin and, and all sorts of other folks. Uh, uh, autobiographies, the, the the one that comes to mind there are there's one by E.O. Wilson, who recently passed away. He's the Harvard entomologist, uh, amazing uh, scientist uh, who really uh, popularized the term consilience. Consilience refers to unity of knowledge. So if you are creating consilience between the social sciences and the natural sciences and the humanities, you're building bridges. So you're creating consilience, unity of knowledge. So he wrote a very nice autobiography. I would check it out. Another autobiography is that I like because, again, it's it's driven by the fact that I love the, the person who wrote the autobiography is Herb Simon. Herb Simon was, was a Nobel laureate in 1978, Nobel laureate in economics. He was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, one of the top polymaths of the 20th century. I mean, he was relevant in in management and administration and psychology and cognitive psychology and artificial intelligence uh, i mean he was all over the place uh he won the nobel prize as a non-economist but he won the nobel prize in economics for his ideas on bounded rationality which i can maybe talk about another time uh and i have a, a signed copy of uh, his autobiography that was given to me by a fellow uh, doctoral student when we were both at Cornell. And Herb Simon, actually, I and I, I've mentioned this elsewhere, uh, Herb Simon uh, came to visit my doctoral supervisor at Cornell back around 1993. And I have a memo in my office that basically says, you know, comments about your work from Herb Simon. Uh, and so I've kept this. I, I've never framed it, but I probably should. Uh, so I would certainly check out that one, uh, that autobiography. Uh, by the way, tomorrow, I haven't mentioned this publicly, so you are you guys are the first to hear this. Tomorrow, I'm heading to Cornell, first time in 10 years, because I found out a few weeks ago that my doctoral supervisor, J. Edward Russo, 
who's a very well-known and respected cognitive psychologist, uh, he's retiring. He he's a he's I think he just turned eighty or is about to turn eighty, but has has remained very very productive scientifically. He was uh, inducted into the I think the as a fellow of in the Association for the Advancement of Science, one of those super prestigious scientific societies. He was inducted in it a few years ago, but he's now decided to retire. And so a whole bunch of his uh, former doctoral students are going to honor him. And so I'll be heading down there tomorrow. Uh, and we actually talked about it. He said, my goodness, I, I, I'm now realizing how f- you know famous you've become and so on and so forth. And so it's, it's always nice when your doctoral supervisor says all these nice things about you and shows that he's you know proud of you. You know, you turn into a little kid when your academic father is, you know, giving you these accolades. So tomorrow I'll be uh, driving down to see him. So thank you for your question. Uh, what books complement the parasitic mind? Uh, I mean, uh, maybe, well, you know, you could go back to 1987, I think, The Closing of the American Mind. I mean, it's not it's not the same thing as The Parasitic Mind, but if you'd like, it's it's part of the series of how people have lost their ability to think and so on. I love, I've always said, the book Higher Superstition, one of my favorite books of all time. Very, very dense. It's not an easy read. It's by uh, Gross and Levitt. It's a book that was written in the 90s. And they already were predicting all of the nonsense with the postmodernism and the feminist theory and all. One of them is a mathematician. The other one is a biologist, if memory serves me right. And so uh, that book was actually quite... uh, quite an op you know it was an opening eye moment for me when i read it you know more than 20 years ago now uh so i would highly recommend you check out that one so thank you nice a nice book moving on to other people keep those uh well two things i need i need the number to go up of 234 i don't know why it's there please send the tweet to your friends tell them to join us we still have quite a bit of time we're only at 41 minutes not sure how long we'll go but let's keep it going uh, you and JP in the US, thank you very much. Move to Florida, come to Israel. Israel, the evil Jews live in Israel. They scare me. The evil Jews, by the way, for those of you who don't know, is a meme that I started. It comes from actually a Muslim guy holding a, a, a sign saying death to Jews, but he misspelled Jews, J-E-W-S. He wrote Jews, J-U-I-C-E. And so then I started referring to the Jews as the evil juice and that way i can't get canceled or anything because because the the idiot uh censors don't don't know what it refers to uh so yeah maybe i'll come to israel soon uh milos potic when is it reasonable to doubt yourself wow that's pretty good when you are engaging in when you are activating your epistemic humility so epistemic humility refers to you know what Confucius said many you know uh, centuries ago uh you know knowledge is to know what you know and what you don't know and so i i'm someone who when i know something i i speak about it with all the swagger of someone who is fully self assured because i've done my homework i've built my nomological network of cumulative evidence i know what i'm talking about but when i don't know something it's not that i'm f- full of self-doubt, but it's that I'm well calibrated so that if you ask me something and I just genuinely don't know, I'll never wing it. I'll never, because if you do that, it takes one time for you to wing something and, and spew some BS and then you lose people's trust. 
imagine how much I'm in the public eye, how many times I've spoken in lectures and on the media and shows on my show, you know, millions and millions of people and times and so on. The reason why I stand here before you, you know, unscathed is because I don't speak about things that I don't know about. I don't BS. I don't wing it. So I think it's it's quite good to to doubt in your knowledge when there is reason for you to exhibit epistemic humility. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, you know, it 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 helps to go through life with the necessary self confidence, right? You couldn't get out of bed and get things done if you didn't have the 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 sense of confidence that would require you to complete you know, whatever initiative you're tackling. So there you go. Plus the ladies, they love confident men, assuming that you're into the ladies. But even if you're into whichever gender you want, confidence is sexy. Okay, let me go on. Let me go back here to make sure that I didn't miss anybody. Uh, 227 people. We need more people. We need more people. Hold on. I got many more. Oh, hold on one second. Uh, I'm just going back. Okay, here we go. Calm, calm on ground. Thank you for your contribution. Uh, love the parasitic mind. Looking forward to reading your next book. Yes, I'm actually, I just finished uh, another entire reading of my book. I put a few XXXs. So the way my, my writing process works, whenever I have something to do, let's say, oh, you know, I need to create a better segue from this sentence to, from, you know, from this section to this section so i'll just put xxx you know create a segue here and so then i number these xxx1 xxx2 so then when i go back i just do a search on xxs and then i clear all the xxx's so in my latest reading i only had nine xxx's which is pretty good i mean in earlier rounds you know i would have 125 xxx's so it's really coming together so you know hopefully i can be done at some point soon so yes thank you very much i too i'm very much looking forward to the next book uh, zed brandon thank you so much for your contribution don't know what the currency is so the number looks big but it could be two cents but it doesn't matter thank you very much for your contribution do you think putin was emboldened to invade ukraine by the west's current effeminate nature yes 100 i think that uh, putin thought that this would be a 48 hour stroll in the park Nobody would give a damn. Everybody would shrug their shoulders and go, ah, what are you going to do? Dictators are going to dictate. I, mean, I know it's not the right uh, verb. and uh, and But to his uh, surprise, it turns out that uh, the the defense has been uh, more, you know, more staunch than he had uh, thought it would be. And some of the responses from the West have been, you know, uh, more committed than he might have calculated them to be. And so I definitely think that uh, we are suffering from a bit of a Chamberlain mechanism. Appease, appease, appease. If you remember World War II, oh, really, Hitler, you promise, even though you're building a military, even though it's against the treaty, you don't have any nefarious uh, designs. Oh, no, I have no nefarious designs. Oh, Mr. Hitler, I know you just conquered uh, whatever Poland, but you really, that's it. You're going to stop, right? You're a good guy, right? Oh, yes, I'm a good guy. Uh, okay, appease, appease, appease. And then, of course, that moron, meaning Chamberlain, was replaced by Winston Churchill, and you needed exactly Winston Churchill to be able to muster that testosterone that was needed for 
the allies in general, but certainly the Brits to to fight the way that they did. So, so to answer your question, Zed Brandon, yes. Thomas Casey, thank you for your contribution. Uh, Gad, what is what is your favorite? Tequila, whiskey, vodka, scotch, or bourbon? Just a beer and wine guy. Wow, what a nice, what a cool question. Yeah, that's one of the. Well, I mean, there are many things I love about doing these. Uh, ask me anything things, but it's the the variety of questions. It's the not knowing. It's it's kind of like almost a form of interactive improv theater, right? Because I'm sitting here, I open the the, the computer. I have no idea what you're going to ask me. You might ask me about neuroscience. You might ask me about uh, the human genome. You might ask me about marketing and consumer psychology, or you might ask me this spirit question. You know, I'm not much of a drinker. I am someone who doesn't enjoy it. Although I have certainly developed an acquired taste for wine. I used to be a red wine drinker. Now, if I drink half a glass, I'm basically comatose. So I've moved to kind of a nice, chilled, dry, white wine. I also like uh, Bailey's Irish cream. Uh, but these hard liquors that you're talking about is really not my forte. But maybe if one day we meet one another in person, you can uh, you can teach me about all the, the beauty of some of these drinks. Because I've tried them and they just feel like drinking gasoline to me. Maybe I just don't have the right uh, genes to synthesize alcohol. Who knows? So thank you for that question. All right, let's move on. And by the way, I, I detest beer. Beer to me is like drinking Ebola. All right, next. Alpha Dog Elite 3. Thank you so much for your contribution. According to a New York Post article, the nonprofit watchdog site Open the Books reports that the highest paid lifeguard in Southern California made over 500K in 2021. How is this possible? I my, I didn't know it was possible. Well, what I can tell you is that the lifeguards in Southern California, it's a career. So the, the senior guys, the, you know, they even have ranks, right? There's a lieutenant. I don't know if they operate through the auspices of the, the fire department, but, you know, they, it's a full career. So it's not just the, the 18-year-old hunky guy uh, you know, who, who's a good swimmer, who, who does the job. It, it's a full career. So I can see how, you know, lieutenants and captains that work within that outfit could be making money as a career, as a full-time career, in the way that a firefighter would or a cop would. But I didn't think it could be 500,000. So I, I can't comment about that. It does seem like it's impossible. Unless... Maybe this is a woke lifeguard who's trying to decolonize the ocean, you know, to, to create a less white supremacist ocean, uh, you know, an ocean that doesn't succumb to white fragility, then maybe the 500,000K would be worth it. All right, let's move on. Must have been David Hasselhoff. That's right. Joseph, thank you so much for your contribution. What are your values? Specifically, are you on board with the nonce, pause, alphabet, Rainbow trance movement. I, I don't know what some of those words mean. I don't know what nonce mean. I don't know what pause mean. Alphabet, I'm guessing, is the alphabet people from uh, Dave Chappelle. Uh, well, I mean, really, you're asking me about my views on the trance movement. I mean, have you not read The Parasitic Mind? Have you not seen my 37,000 case times when I've talked about this? I'm all for transgender rights. I'm very socially liberal. 
but in the service of pursuing a world free of bigotry, even though that will never happen, that doesn't mean that we murder truth in the service of that goal, right? So what does that mean? I can support transgender rights. I can be against institutionalized bigotry in any form against any group of people. But that doesn't mean that I stand behind boys too can menstruate. That doesn't mean that I support menstrual equity, whereby we now need to put uh, female hygiene uh, hygiene products in men's bathroom, you know, because of menstrual equity, because, you know, boys too menstruate, because, you know, men too bear children. So I can walk and chew gum at the same time. I can support transgender rights, as I fully do, without ever espousing the bullshit. No, Leah Thomas is not a woman. Leah Thomas is the transgender uh, swimmer who's now, you know, destroying, squashing, clobbering every biological female because, you know, she's just a woman who's six foot eight, 245 pounds. Uh, she's just a woman. Yesterday, she was a man. She self-identifies a woman. She's a woman. That's it. Shut up. Shut up, bigot. Well, so I'm not on board with that. So yes, all for transgender rights. No for, for example, transgender athletes competing with, you know, transgender women competing with biological females. All right, let's move on. David Thompson, thank you so much for your contribution. How much have you read of Thomas Sowell's work, if any? And would there be any chance that you could have a conversation with him? Uh, I haven't read all his books. I've read some of his stuff. Uh, I love Thomas Sowell. I would love probably of all academics, you know, he'd be up there in terms of the people that I'd love to have a conversation with. The reason, frankly, is because I think he's a historical figure. I think Thomas Sowell is an original honey badger. Thomas Sowell was beating up on all of the woke bullshitters when all of us weren't born or some of us were in diapers. Uh, he's a man of logic, of reason. He's, he's a no-nonsense guy. He lets data drive his thinking. He's willing to revise his opinion if incoming data comes in that falsifies his thinking. So he, he exudes, he, he, he's a, He's a, he epitomizes all of the traits that I admire in a, in a thinker. And so from that perspective, I think it would be a historical opportunity to just have him on record talking to me. A few years ago, I came close to bringing him on the show. But, you know, uh, Dr. Sowell is notoriously reclusive. It's very, very hard to get to him, which is a real shame because, I mean, I understand he's an older gentleman. He's in well into his 90s now. Uh, you know, I'm sure he's lost a bit of a step in his walk. He, he's, you know, he wants to do other things. Uh, but yeah, maybe I should try again to bring him on. I know that a few years ago, Dave Rubin uh, had him on his show. Uh, so maybe I'll try again. But but believe me, I've tried in the past and it, it has never worked. I, I tried once in the past and it never it didn't go anywhere. Uh, but yeah, I, I love his work. I think he's fantastic. Truly fantastic. I even did a, uh, I, I, you could go to my uh, website and see an article that I uh, wrote, I think last year, where I talked about 10 reasons why you, we should all love Thomas Sowell. And then I turned it into a sad truth clip. So check it out. All right, moving on to the next person. We have 241 people. You know, it, it always seems when I do these impromptu things, I'm always around 300 people that show up, 250 to 300 people. So I definitely think, uh, I need to do more promotion before we do these things. 
All right, here we go. Let's move on to the next person. P. Martin, I watched your recent video about the gentleman getting a PhD late in life. How does one get back into academia for a PhD after being out and working for over 10 years? How do I get references, etc.? Great question. Let me just uh, remind people about the story in question. This is uh, this was the last uh, sad truth clip that I uh, posted on my YouTube channel, uh, and then I posted it on uh, on my podcast. It's a gentleman by name of, if I remember his name correctly, Manfred Steiner. This gentleman is uh, now he's ninety, but when he got his PhD, he was eighty nine. He got his MD degree in I think nineteen fifty five. Then he got a PhD in biochemistry in 1967 at MIT. His MD, I think, was from somewhere in Vienna. And his PhD in biochemistry in 1967, so almost around when I was born. And then, you know, 50 plus years later, he decides that he's always wanted to be a physicist. He's always loved physics. Starts taking undergraduate courses at 70 years old. He's now, as I said, 90. And eventually moves up all the way to a PhD defended his dissertation, doctoral dissertation at Brown University in physics last fall. Uh, and actually, I've, I've now included that story in my next book. In the book in question, my next book, I had another story about a gentleman who got his PhD at my university at the age of 91. So that was kind of the story of that section. But now I've added Dr. Steiner to that section. Uh, I don't, you know, I... I mean, how do you go about doing it? Uh, number one thing is you have to have the intellectual curiosity and the intellectual stamina to do a PhD. If you've or if you have those, then half the battle's already won. Now, the next question is: Can you find a supervisor that is ideal for your particular research interest? So, for example, uh, you know, I receive tons and tons of inquiries from students who want who wish to you know, do their PhD under my supervision. Oftentimes I, most of the times I say no, not necessarily because they're not well-trained, but the research interests that they describe that they're interested in pursuing simply don't align with what I do, right? And I don't mean to imply that I'm very restricted in my research interests because I'm very, very much of an interdisciplinary, but typically it's going to have to be something related to behavioral sciences, to decision-making, to evolutionary psychology. And so, you know, one of these kinds of mixes has to be present within the research, the, the topics that you might be interested in. So I think the trick for you, uh, Mr. Martin, is to identify the right school that would be a, a good fit for your PhD. And again, by right school, I really mean right supervisor, because at the PhD level, really, that's what matters the most by far. Notwithstanding, of course, you have to make sure that you'll get the proper funding and so on. And then in terms of references, well, I mean, there is no other solution but than to go back to your previous professors. Hopefully you've left an indelible mark uh, in the memories of some of the professors and hopefully they can write you strong letters. Uh, not sure what else I can say about that, but best of luck. I'm always excited when I hear that someone is thinking of going back to school. It's, it's so inspiring. And so I wish you the best of luck and hopefully one day, you will be Dr. Martin. All right, next. Moving on, we've got Stefan Sinilas. Progressives for, for free speech love Dr. Saad. Well, aren't you sweet? See, you know, one of the things that I love about uh, you know being in the public eye 
is that for all of the you know the hate that i might receive online and so on it it is completely dwarfed by the amount of love and support so you know it's probably 99.9% to 0.1% uh, in terms of favorable versus hateful uh and what i love about the people what i really appreciate is that the the demographics and the political orientations of the people who appreciate my work is not just you know one group it's not just oh you know people who are center right who love me i get tons of progressives and you know muslims and gay people and transgender people and all kinds of and, you know and corrections officers and air force pilots and 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 that's what i love that is that you know if you are truly preaching a message that allows you to connect with so many different people then i think you're you're on the right track and and actually that's one of the reasons why i love to do these these pop up things because you know it's just fun to connect with your fans i wish there were a lot more people here again it 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 annoys me because you know it takes effort you have to come out and so on so i'd love to see tons more people but again i think it's all my fault because i do these in a completely impulsive way without any promotion so thank you very much for your kind words mr sinilas moving on to the next person brie uh when you set up a live stream on the last screen before the uh okay when you set up a live stream on the last screen before the go live screen it lets you set up a start date time this will appear on your channel as an upcoming video and give the date and time yes you you're right uh I, i'm aware of that i did that for the last live stream where i set it for the following day but usually as i was just saying it's a very impulsive thing i feel like being creative i feel like connecting with with the the fans and the supporters and i just turn it on without any preparation without any promotion but i realize that you know if i'm going to make these as, as impactful as possible i need to give people the the lead time to to pencil it into their schedules but hey we still have over 200 people it's not too bad Let's keep it going, guys. I love juice, meaning I'm guessing juice. Thank you for that. Uh, let's keep the uh, the super chats coming if you want me to answer your questions. Couch, thank you for your contribution. I have been reading the parasitic mind to my cat each night. The cat is still e <laughs> the cat is still evil, but I'm hopeful. Maybe the because you, you know the story about the uh, Toxoplasma Gandhi with the mouse being infected. Uh, with toxoplasma gandhi and it no longer is afraid of the cat and it is now attracted to the cats it's sexually attracted to the cat's urine so maybe your cat is simply enjoying the fact that i'm mentioning cats in the parasitic mind there you go thomas casey thank you for your contribution godfather you need to watch oh hold on it you 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 disappeared let me go back and find you hold on a second hold on a second i'm scrolling back to get to Thomas Casey, yeah. Godfather, you need to watch Matt Walsh. What is a woman? Premiere today and give a review on it. You know, thank you for reminding me because I received an email from uh, the producer or whomever, the company that, I, I don't know if it was Daily Wire that uh, created the, the the thing and they asked me to, if 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 they can send me uh, access so that I can watch the view and I haven't responded yet. So thank you for reminding me. I didn't know that it was premiering today, but I'm really excited to watch it. Uh, yeah, so I definitely will check it out. I'm not sure if I'll write a review of it, but I'll certainly try to promote it. So thank you for that. All right, moving on, moving on. 219 people. 
thousands of messages keep those super chats coming people support the one who puts everything on the line support the one who has had 58 percent of his book royalties stolen from him eup that's me thank you for your contribution other than through public ridicule and derision how else can we kill the evil parasitic ideas of wokeness and marx well i mean in chapter seven and eight of the parasitic mind i explain that in chapter seven i explain how we can uh defend truthful claims using nomological networks of cumulative evidence and then in chapter eight i've got a whole set of calls to action that exactly address your question so rather than repeating it here i'll just you know ask you to to go if you haven't read it yet to go and check that i exactly answer those questions i'll mention one because it's a quick one to address uh, in chapter eight i talk about activating your inner honey badger and what i mean by that is that you should be ideologically fierce when defending your positions not not because you're an ideologue not because you're dogmatic but because if you've got a set of principles that you're able to defend justify using well art articulated arguments then you should never shy away be fierce be ferocious defend your principles hence be a honey badger so so ridicule and mockery and satire are very, very powerful tools to use as I, as I use when I'm trying to persuade someone of something. But it's, they're just one of many possible uh, strategies within the repertoire of persuasion techniques. All right, Milo Potic. Milo Potic is back. Oh, thanks for coming back. When is it reasonable to doubt your inherent abilities while in pursuit of your dream? Question inspired by the 89 PhD graduate video. Is it a clarification for my last question? It says it was ambiguous. Okay, well, thank you for coming back with some clarifications. I, I mean, I guess I think what you're asking, if I'm to rephrase it, how, how could you know whether your, your, your self-doubt is well calibrated and well justified or not? And, and it's hard to offer a, a general question because each case will will lead to a different thing, right? So for example, if I walk into a basketball court with, you know, NBA players, all of whom are one head taller than me, and I have a bit of self-doubt about my ability to, to perform well with them, well, that's a well-justified self-doubt. It basically says that I'm well-calibrated in the way that I recognize the things that I'm good at versus the things that I might not be good at. I think self-doubt is a problem when it is poorly calibrated right you th there is no reason for you to think that everybody thinks you're a moron at a party and that you've got nothing valuable to say and yet you believe that you're a useless person who's got nothing interesting to say everybody's going to laugh at you right so that's a stifling a dysfunctional form of self-doubt that need not be rooted in any objective truth. It's just your mind that's convincing you of that. And that's exactly what happens with, you know, one of the most effective tools in, in therapy, right? Cognitive behavior therapy. The idea is to change your cognition about something, to show you that your cognitive attributions or patterns are incorrect, alter those cognitions, so then there are downstream effects as to how you behave. So if I can convince you in therapy that actually you're a, you're a very smart person, you've got really interesting things to say, and there's no reason why you should be doubting yourself, it's not an accurate assessment of your objective abilities, then hopefully that 
builds you up and gives you the courage to go to the party and speak to 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 put your hand up and say something in class so it's hard to say across all situations what it is but it's important to get a sense of whether your self-doubt has any roots in reality or whether it is a reflection of a dysfunction in your personhood my god that was eloquent god damn 195 people we're down to 193 i'm offended Thank you very much, Milos Potic. John Tapper, uh, thank you for your contribution. My friend John Galbani was wondering where you get your ideas from. Who the hell is John Galbani? I have no idea what that means. Anyways, uh, and which idea do you mean? Are you, you know, ideas come from many places. My, how I learned about evolutionary psychology, that idea came from a course that I took in my first semester as a doctoral student. Uh, the idea for using the neuroparasitology model in uh, the parasitic mind came to me when I was trying to come up with an animal model for why it is that minds can be zombified into behaving in ways that are irrational. So I jumped into the neuroparasitology literature and then you know developed my thinking by reading that literature. So you know each... Each thing comes from a different place. But what's exciting the most is when you come up with an original idea, a pioneering idea, whether it be in this book or that book or this book. Uh, and this book is an edited book, which means basically it's a collection of many papers from many authors, which I put together into my edited book here. Uh, and so the genesis of ideas comes from you know many sources. Uh, there is a great book by Dean Simonton that talks about how creativity is itself a Darwinian process. And so in a sense, it answers your question in a very fancy scientific way. There is a evolutionary epistemology to how ideas are generated and how some ideas are selected and others die out, very much akin to an evolutionary process. So even the field of epistemology is driven by Darwinian mechanisms. So there you go. But where do our ideas come from? They come from this beautiful brain. Uh, all right, show Sugino. Thank you so much uh, for your contribution. I love your Shakespearean wit and look forward to your newest book. Hope you're getting enough sleep. Aren't you sweet? I, what a beautiful expression, your Shakespearean wit. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, uh, it's my mind is always racing. I've always got. I'm thinking. I'm always thinking about something. Remember the the person who said, "Where do you get your ideas from?" It's my brain is always going. What's the next idea? What's the next thing? What's the next book? What's the next paper? What's the next project? I'm always thinking of you know new ideas, uh, how to pioneer new things, do innovative things, and so sometimes I go to bed and I can't shut off my brain. It's racing. So I don't know if I should say regrettably, I've now taken to the habit of taking. Uh, these over-the-counter sleeping pills, which then put me in a much deeper state of sleep. So with the help of those pills, I think I've been able to, you know, get about six and a half, seven hours of sleep, which is not too bad. So sleep is okay. It could be better. I should probably go to bed a bit earlier than I do. But overall, things are okay. Knock on wood. Thank you so much for your uh, contribution and and for that lovely Turn of phrase, Shakespearean wit. I love it. All right, moving on. We got Ryan V. Hey, God. Thanks for being you. Well, thank you, sir. That's very sweet of you. 
Have you read The Constitution of Knowledge by Jonathan uh, Rauch? And if so, do you recommend it? It's about epistemology and seems up your alley. I don't think I've read that one. I think he's got another. Is is it him who wrote Kindly Imposters? That's what's kind of ringing in my in my head. I'm not sure if it is him. Uh, but his name certainly sounds familiar. I feel as though I've read something by him. That particular book title doesn't ring a bell to me, so I'm going to go with no. But now that you've said it, I'll check it out. The Constitution of Knowledge. Okay, I'll check it out. Thank you so much for your uh, recommendation. All right, moving on. We got Michael Arturo. Are you concerned with population decline from the non-breeders? Is it feasible that we may not be able to crew our economy in the future? What the hell does that mean? Sorry, not, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I'm trying to understand. Are you concerned with population decline from the non-breeders? You mean the fact that non-breeders, meaning people who decide to not have children, that they are not contributing to our growing fertility? Is that what you mean? By the way, I think that the replacement number uh, is 2.17. I hope I'm right. Maybe somebody will correct me here if I'm wrong. Uh, you, you know, you have to have on average 2.17 children for there to be more births than deaths so that the population doesn't decline. Uh, I'm not concerned. No, I've never really thought much of it. I have, though, had conversations with people that I know, you know, acquaintances or in a few cases, friends, as to why they made the conscious decision to not have children. Uh, now, I'm interested in this because, of course, from an evolutionary perspective, the, the ultimate currency is your inclusive fitness, how, you know, how much you reproduce. Uh, that's the ultimate, you know, evolutionary, biologically relevant currency in terms of your success in an evolutionary sense. And so when someone says, hey, I'm, I'm a Darwinian dead end when it comes to reproduction, I, I willfully don't wish to reproduce children. I, I understand that's totally fine. And, and you know, people come of all shapes and sizes and preferences that's okay but uh i'm always interested to try to find out why it is that the otherwise default innate instinct to reproduce uh does not manifest itself in a person so actually i think that would be a great uh, research project so if anybody pursues it contact me what are the for example personality predictors that can help us understand why someone decides that they don't wish to ever breed there you go. Uh, is it feel that we not have enough crew to... So you're saying basically if we don't have enough people, then we won't be able to fill all of the jobs that are available. Of course, automation in a sense takes care of a lot of that because many jobs that historically were filled by humans are now being replaced by automation. So I don't know what the net accounting will be, uh, but thank you very much for that question. Joey, uh, thank you for your contribution. How reliable are big five personality tests that rely on self-assessment, how to adjust for bias that may be too egotistical or self-deprecating? Yeah, so what you're asking here, it doesn't necessarily only apply to big personality tests. More generally, you're saying, are psychometric tests reliable to the extent that there might be a... Uh, personal bias in the way that I answer the questions. For example, if I'm trying to uh, engage in impression, impression management, uh, self-impression management, I may uh, quickly recognize the general direction of the questions, and then I will answer not truthfully, but in a way that hopefully you know protects my ideal sense of self. 
of course, those kinds of issues are addressed when you are developing a psychometric scale. So this is not as though, you know, psychometricians are not aware of that. Uh, there are several ways that you can address that. Here's one. So in a psychometric test, you have you have a bunch of items that you're answering, and then and then the participant is answering strongly agree to strongly disagree on it, right? Well, let's suppose the more I answer strongly agree, so I, I give a seven on a one scale of one to seven, I give a seven. That means I am, you know, more uh, aggressive. Whatever it is, more jealous, more uh, ambitious, whatever the measure that I'm, whatever whatever the construct it is that that's being measured. Well, what often will happen is that people, if the people realize more means I answer seven, they'll start circling everything seven down the line without really reading the question. So one of the ways that you can intercept that is that you could you put what are called reverse coded items, meaning you put items that are worded in such a way that more of it, in this case, would mean you'd have to answer a one. It, you, you phrase it in the negative. Now, if you see that people are being inconsistent, then you know that either they're engaging in impression management or that they are engaging in uh, you know, not paying attention to the task. So there are techniques by which you can try to minimize the likelihood of that bias. God damn, that singular question on psychometric testing was already worth your time here. 205 people, don't know why we don't have 20,005. Hopefully, with better promotion, I'll be able to do that. Let's keep the flow going. We're at 100, not 100, an hour and 17 minutes, moving down the line of Super Chats. If you wish to have your question answered by the very, very handsome Dr. Saad, please submit your Super Chat donation. Going down the list, wait a minute. Okay, hold on a second. I think I skipped some. Wait a second. Wait a second. I'm going back. Uh, okay, one second, guys. Sorry. I need to find a better way to manage these super chat things. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Michael Arturo's back. Thank you so much, sir. Would you consider monogamy normal in human relations in regards to human evolution? What a fantastic question. And coincidentally, I have a whole section discussing exactly that in my next book, although I've discussed it in other contexts. In the, in the context of this book, I talk about it uh, when I'm discussing the chapter on variety seeking, and I'm talking about various forms of variety seeking, one of which is sexual variety seeking. And then I say, okay, so what's, what's the evolutionary story? Are we meant to be sexual variety seekers or are we meant to be uh, sexually monogamous, hence, you know, brand loyal, so to speak, to use the marketing term, one partner. And of course, we're both. That's that's the conundrum. We have, and now I'm getting into the content of the next book, which I hope that you'll still purchase. If anything, I hope by me giving you this explanation, it'll only make it exciting for you to purchase it. Look, uh, we are one of the rare biparental species, and certainly within mammals, meaning biparental, meaning that human males are actually super dads compared to the totality across uh, the mammalian taxa, if, if not across all animals, human males really do invest a lot. They don't invest as much as, as, as women, but we are officially considered a biparental species, which means that it makes perfect sense for humans to have evolved the penchant for long-term coupling 
which basically means monogamy. The idea being that romantic love, for example, all of the endocrinological system that relates to romantic love exists so that we can develop an affiliative bond with another partner, right? But we also have evolved the penchant for sexual variety, both men and women, by the way. Women, not as much as men, but the evolutionary evidence is incontestable that both sexes have evolved a desire for sexual variety. So in the book, when I'm talking about different forms of uh, variety seeking, I talk about some of the pitfalls whereby, you know, uh, if you are in a monogamous union, i.e. a marriage, whether it be legally or morally or religiously, you may be bound to that contract, even though in your deepest, in the deepest recesses of your desires, you may wish to stray. You may look at that woman next door and say, oh my God, I wouldn't mind being with her. But yet you also have the Darwinian pull of moral constraint. And so uh, in many cases, we have multiple Darwinian pulls pulling us in different directions. Thank you for that great question. All right, moving on to the next person, next super chat. You want your questions answered? Super chat me. Perseus Wong, is another Renaissance plus age of enlightenment possible given the current inquisition-like culture? What will it take to usher that era without being burned at the stake? Yes, well, I've often used this kind of language. I recently did a sad truth clip where I said that we are returning to the epistemological dark ages. I mean, think about it. We had the Renaissance, we had the scientific revolution, we had the enlightenment, we had several centuries of this incredibly magical period in art, in literature, in science, the, 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 the formal founding of the scientific method that led to these unbelievable explosion of knowledge in every conceivable field. We are able to do things that feel like science fiction, we can place a man-made object on a moving comet. I mean, what the hell? We can map the human genome. We can solve Fermat's last theorem in number theory, something that stood unsolved for hundreds of years. Okay. And yet we are returning, as you correctly pointed, to what looks like a dark age. Uh, I do think that there'll be an autocorrection, but... In a sense, I so regret that we have to refight these battles. You'd like to think that there's kind of a unidirectionality in history, at least in epistemology, whereby once we have defeated the dark ages or the 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 cognitive traps of the dark ages, that's it. They're dead and we can move on. But of course, this speaks exactly to this point in, in the parasitic mind, which is the human capacity to be parasitized by ideology, by tribalism, by stupid ideas, is infinite. And therefore, the phoenix arises again. The phoenix of stupidity, of imbecility, of tribalism, of dogma rises again. And then a new generation has to come out and squash it again. Right. So that's why when Ronald Reagan, and I mentioned this in The Parasitic Mind, when Ronald Reagan famously said that, you know, every generation you have to be on the lookout for all of the enemies that are trying to squash your liberties. It's not you've become free and you're free forevermore. You always have to be fighting for it. Well, the same applies to what Perseus Wong is saying. We always have the pull to return to the dark ages. 
and it requires courageous people to stand up and say, no, 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 we need to fix this. So I don't know how long it will take. I don't know how many careers have to be lost, how many people have to be, as you said, burnt at the stake. But I am optimistic that uh, the fulcrum will swing again and uh, reason will prevail. All right, moving on to the next super chatter. You want your questions answered? Super chat me. All right, here we go. Invite Mr. Talib back on your show. Yes, I will. I love you, sir. You've inspired me to start studying psychology. I'm just reading some of the comments. You know, I, I hate the fact that I don't have a chance to read all of the, the comments because I really would like to. But let me, you know how it is. Questions that are going to be answered are going to be from people who are super chatting me. All right, let me go to the next one. Bear with me. Faris Aloof. Hello, Gad. Uh, hello, Faris. What do you think about the situation in Lebanon? How similar Lebanese identity politics, religious that ruin the country is to gender or racial identity politics in the Americas? Well, that's why I started off in chapter one of the Parasitic Mind, Faris, with discussing my history in Lebanon because I was trying to explain that I lived through the most perfect manifestation of a society that is organized according to identity politics right? Everything in Lebanon, as you know, till today is viewed through the prism of which religious group you belong to. Are you Maronite? Are you Sunni? Are you Shia? Never mind, are you Jewish? There are no more Jews in Lebanon. They magically disappeared. Who knew how? Who knows how? Uh, and so there are all of these tribal factions. Of course, there's also corruption in Lebanon, endemic corruption. And so one wonders whether it is a lost, failed state. I'd like to think not. Uh, Lebanon is such a beautiful mixing of folks right there uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, I'd like to be optimistic and things that eventually things will change, but I'm not sure how much optimism I have because every fiber of that society is rooted in some endemic mechanisms that makes it very difficult for the society to get out of the grip of tribalism, corruption, religious hatred. So I'm not sure that we're ever going to see a better Lebanon, but inshallah, let's hope so. All right, next, we got AK. Thank you so much for your uh, contribution. Dear Dr. Saad, have you noted Islamic attacks against Hindus in India using democratic system of India against Hindus has been on steady rise? Thoughts? Well, I'm surprised that there's been Islamic attacks against Hindus because Islam is a religion of peace, there is absolutely no known historical context over the past 1,400 years of Islam attacking anyone other than the 33 billion cases where that has happened. Hence, read chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the parasitic mind. So, no, I'm not surprised that it's happening. What are my thoughts about it? That's just the way it is in the sense that, uh, look, I don't need to preface what I'm about to say with this, but let me do it in case there are some imbeciles here. Individual Muslims can be lovely or could be nasty. Individual Jews can be lovely or they can be nasty. Any group can have lovely people and nasty people. But when we talk about a particular ideology, then we are looking at the contents of that ideology. What are the tenets that it preaches? And so that's why you have to go to chapter six and chapter seven of the parasitic mind. Is Islam a supremacist religion? Absolutely. We will have peace united under the flag of Allah when we are all Muslim. That's an Islamic tenet. Okay? 
Well, it's hard to live in a pluralistic, tolerant, heterogeneous, multicultural, multi-ethnic society when that's the goal. So when people say, but Islam is peace. Yes, it's peace when we're all Muslims. Until then, we have Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harab, the, the, the salon, the camp of Islam, and then the camp of war. The camp of war are all lands that are not Islamic. It's all there. You can't say, I don't know it. Arabic's my mother tongue. You can't say, I don't know the Quran. I know it. You can't say, I didn't grow up in the area. I grew up in the area. So I don't need John Smith from Arkansas to send me emails telling me, but you don't understand true Islam. I understand true Islam. I live in Canada because I understand true Islam. Again, this the people who wanted to kill us were Muslim and the people who saved us were Muslim. So I have no hatred, none, zero, to individual Muslims because they come in all varieties. Most Muslims I met are completely lovely. Does Islam have certain tenets that are incongruent with liberal, secular, multicultural, multi-ethnic societies? Absolutely. You couldn't devise a religious belief system that were more incongruent. Okay, And that's why when Islam enters a particular country, wait enough time, and that country goes from zero Islam to 99.9% Islamic. So there are 57 countries that are part of the OIC, Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Each of those countries at one point had zero Muslims. And then one day Islam came in, sometimes peacefully, sometimes less peacefully. And eventually those countries become magically completely Islamic. What happened to the people who were not originally Islamic? Where did they magically disappear to? There you go. All right, next, Ryan V. Following up on the uh, Rausch book, he wrote The Happiness Curve. Oh, maybe that's the one I was thinking about. The new book I mentioned comes highly recommended from Jonathan Haidt. Thanks again for being uh, our inspirational, very svelte honey badger. Well, aren't you sweet? Okay, uh, there's another book. I, uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt wrote a book uh, on happiness, which uh, I cite in my latest book but I'll have to check the happiness curve. Thank you so much. So Jonathan Rauch, let me let me check this guy. Thank you so much, Ryan V. I really appreciate it. All sound, oh, I just missed. Hold on a second. Yeah, all around sounds. Thank you so much for your uh, contribution. Doc, are you familiar with Nietzsche Ubermensch? If so, thoughts, thank you. Uh, not sure I, I know what that, I, I've seen that term before. I think I recently saw it. Uh, the exact context doesn't is not uh, queuing in my head, so I, I I'd rather not comment. I know of some of Nietzsche's stuff. I can't remember what the Ubermensch concept is. Uh, maybe someone will write it later. So apologies if I can't answer it here. But as I said earlier, epistemic humility. I don't BS you. If I'm not sure of something, I will say it straight out. My apologies. Okay, moving on to the next person. All right, Oflameo. Why are there men and women? who identify as incel when their psychotherapist told them to just be themselves and that always solves the problem. Sorry, I, I didn't get that. Let me read that again. Why are there men and women identify as incel when their psychotherapist told them to just be themselves and that always solves the problem? Question mark. Uh, of Lameo, 
I'm sorry to say, I don't think I follow the meaning of that question. Maybe it's a riddle. Maybe it's a, I don't know, it's a scavenger hunt. I'm having hot up. Let me read it a third time. Why are there men and women identify as incel when their psychotherapist told them to just be themselves and that always solves the problem? So I think what you're saying is someone is an incel, meaning uh, involuntarily uh, celibate, if I remember the term correctly. And yet their psychotherapist says, hey, you don't have to be uh, celibate, uh, you know, and potentially frustrated in the sexual market. Just be yourself and things will work out. I'm guessing that's what you're asking. I'm not sure if I if I got it. Well, I think that uh, oftentimes if being yourself is not attractive on the mating market, then maybe you need to improve yourself, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like saying, you know, I'm going to present myself to the world as being, you know, very overweight. And if people don't love me for who I am, then it's their fault because I have body positivity. Well, that's great. I'm glad that you feel confident in yourself. But the reality is that most people will find you more attractive if you were leaner. Very few men fantasize about sleeping with 500 pound women. Very women, very few women fantasize about sleeping with 500 pound men. So you can engage in body positivity, but then you shouldn't be complaining that there isn't an orderly line of sexy people who are desperate to have sex with you, as I explain in my latest book. So if your psychotherapist is saying, well, just be yourself, I mean, being authentic is a good thing. And I discuss this in my next book, the importance of authenticity as part of the good life. But let's suppose you're someone who's very inattentive. You don't pay attention when people are speaking. Your mind wanders, you're ADD, you interrupt. Hey, but that's myself. That's just me being myself. Well, no, then you better work on yourself. Because if you go on a date and your date can't put in two words together because you're constantly interrupting her, you're looking around, you're gawking at other people, then maybe being yourself is being a shitty person. And maybe that's why you are celibate. So I'm not sure exactly what to answer. Each case is different, but there are cases where being yourself might not be the best idea and improving yourself might be the better approach. All right. We got a guy using tube you. Okay. Dear Mr. Sal, how do you rec recover from being socially ostracized at a large scale? Is there a path to redemption for such individual formerly friend? Uh, okay. How do you recover from being socially ostracized at a large scale? Is there a path to redemption for such individual? You mean there's an individual for whatever reason that individual engaged in some behavior, took some action, had a certain belief that made that individual be ostracized by a whole bunch of people, how can they regain approval within the group? It's hard for me to answer because the specifics here matter, right? I mean, were you ostracized because you're a pedophile? In which case, there is no way back. Were you ostracized because you voted for Donald Trump? In which case, fuck your friends. Because if they, don't, if they ostracize you because you uh, voted for someone with whom they disagree, then they're not worthy of your friendship. So I can't answer you in the abstract. I would need to know the specifics. You know, one of the things that's beautiful about doing these um, um, live streams is, you might, I mean, do you, do you see how quickly one has to think on their feet? It's unbelievable. All right, let me go on. Oh, sorry, I missed a few. Let me go back. Dear Mr. Sal, how do you have? Okay, that's, that was you. We got Greek poet. Who, who in bracket is George Klonarakis. Uh, I'll just say this. I think I mentioned it in the last live stream. Most beautiful place I've ever been to in my life, Greek islands. Naxos, Corfu, 
Santorini, uh, Crete, and Foligandros. Those were the five islands that I went to. Unbelievable. Do you believe in advanced extraterrestrial civilizations? If so, do you think they had a direct influence on uh, Sumer and other ancient civilizations? I don't know about the second part. It's a bit too booga booga for me. Uh, do I believe in advanced uh, extraterrestrials? I, there, I don't see that there's any evidence of that, but oftentimes people answer that question using a statistical paradigm. They basically say, okay, here is the size of the universe. Here is the, the type of environment we would need to have some life form. Therefore, what is the statistical probability that in this vast universe, there would be no other place other than Earth that has the right conditions for life? And so from that statistical perspective, then I would answer, I would have to say that it's very likely that somewhere in this vast universe that is unfathomably big, there must be other civilizations. But in terms of, oh, do I think that there was a flying saucer that went over New Mexico and all that shit? No, I don't think any of that. Okay. Oh, we got Sara Bilyeu who's, who's breaking down the Arabic. All right. Got you. Uh, Richie Estelry, Easterly, can you go over Girdle's incompleteness theorem? God damn. Uh, I'm not going to go over it now, but uh, but thank you for recognizing that I would know it. Uh, uh, Girdle, actually, I mentioned him in my latest book uh, when I'm talking about the joys of walking. And the reason I'm saying this is because Gödel and Einstein, they were both at the Institute for Advanced Studies in uh, Princeton. Gödel, one of the most brilliant mathematicians. I mean, his stuff is mind-blowing, just mind-blowing. As, as you know, I'm guessing that's why you asked the question. I have a back, I have background in mathematics. That's where I, I learned this, this stuff. And uh, it's it borders on the mystical. You, you read one of these proofs and you're like, what the hell? How the hell did this guy come up with this stuff? It's unbelievable. It's from another dimension. Okay, that's what's beautiful, by the way, about mathematics. It, it, uh, it causes you to think in ways that if you don't understand mathematics, you can't even imagine that there could be thought at that level, because it's using a completely different language, a completely different mode of communication. But in any case, not to be, not to get too philosophical on you. Uh, so in in the in the book, I talk about how Einstein would say that the only reason that he would show up to work. At, at the at Princeton is because he looked forward to going on these long walks with Girdle. Could you imagine walking, being a fly on the wall with you know one of the greatest mathematicians in the 20th century, if not of all time? The other one, arguably the most famous scientist of all time, greatest physicist of all time, and they're just strolling along on campus, and you could just be taking in all that wisdom. Uh, so I'm not going to get into the technical stuff of, and I'm, I'm not, I'd have to kind of remind myself, although I, I, I remember the general, uh, uh, gist of the, the, the proof, uh, maybe I'll do it in a future sad truth clip, but thank you for that very unique and esoteric question. Girdle. I actually have a, uh, a biography on Girdle, uh, here in my library. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. I'm just, uh, Richie, can you go over? Okay, I covered that one. Uh, what else we got? Amaroj, Amar Jod Daliwal. 
I am so sorry that if I screwed up your name. My apology. Are you a Star Wars fan? Uh, I, I'm worried that if I answer truthfully, which I will, maybe you will no longer be a fan. I am not. I despise all those science fiction movies. To me, they are a bit more painful than if I were to uh, inject Ebola into my eyes. Star Wars, Star Trek, I, I find it nauseating. I just can't relate. I can't link up to it. I can't. And it's not, oh, because now I'm older. Well, you know, when I was 12 and Star Wars, what was the first one? I think it was 1977, 1976. I was about 12 years old. I couldn't stand that stuff. So no, I don't like it. And F the Quebec tax also. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You can't imagine what it has done, not only to my spirit. And actually, one of the reasons why I do these things, because it takes me out of my mind. I walk around as though I'm a psychiatric institute patient, kind of like bobbing my head that the government has just taken all the money. It's gone. It's my money. I made it. I wrote this book. I lived that experience. It's my humor, my satire, my theories, my ideas, my words. But they, take, they didn't tax me 5%, which we can argue shouldn't have been. They're taxing me 58%. So I am 0.42 of a human being. They own, Now, by the way, I, I'm currently writing an article, which at some point I'll, I'll release somewhere about the parasitic taxation. Maybe I'll even turn it into a whole book. If you try, if you wish to quote more than 500 words, then you need to get copyright clearance from the person from whom you're quoting. Even though you're going to quote it, right? It's, it's not, you know, you're going to quote it. Once you pass 500 words, it exceeds the fair use and you have to get permission for 500 words. If I want to get my students to read a bunch of papers, academic papers in my course as assigned reading, I'm not allowed to email them those papers. There's no profit here. It's part of a course because of copyright. So imagine this. I, I, as a professor, can't share academic papers via email with my students as assigned reading because that would be violating copyright rules. You can't quote more than 500 words because that violates copyright rules. But the government can come and say 58% of your words, the money of your thoughts are mine. So from this side of the mouth, you can't quote 500 words. From this side of my, your mouth, you could take 58% of my money. Now, why am I so angry also? Because... I don't make millions of dollars. That amount of money is that I had made it in life. After all these years of working hard, all of these years fighting, putting myself on the line, getting death threats, getting ostracized from academic community, I don't care. But I made it. I wrote the opus. I wrote the best-selling international seller. I now have enough money to retire a few years early. I have money to do other things. I can put a down payment to a condo. And then on May 2nd, I pressed the button and it all disappeared. That's not how you organize a fair society. That's not how you organize a meritocratic society. There is no reason why I should pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a service that 40% of Canadians will pay zero taxes. It's unconscionable. And future historians will marvel that we allowed this to happen. Anyways, thank you so much for your uh, question, Amar Jod. Let me go on to the next person. 
sweetest sadist. I like that. What is your favorite joke? Uh, there, there's a few. Here is one. I don't know if it's very good. And watch, I'm going to get canceled now because it's a joke about sex differences. But guess what? I'm a honey badger. I don't give a shit. You ready? Only 220 people. It's We're already at an hour and 43 minutes. And I'm leaving tomorrow to Cornell. And I'm sitting here with you guys. Let's get the super chats going. Let's get some more people. Next time, I'm going to do a promotion before we do these for the for our fifth Ask My Anything. I better see at least a 1,000 people. Uh, all right. What is uh, my favorite joke? So a, uh, a, uh, a surfer is sitting on the beach in California, and he sees uh, a bottle, uh, this kind of exotic-looking bottle. He opens it up, and, he, and a genie comes out. And, and the genie says, Master... You have freed me from 3,000 years of being bottled up in this bottle. Thank you so much. Any wish that you have, I will grant it. So the surfer says, hmm, this is very good. You know, I love surfing here in uh, California, but I've always wanted to surf in Hawaii, but I have a fear of flying, so I don't want to fly to Hawaii. So can you build a highway from california across the pacific ocean to hawaii so i can take my van with my surfboard and drive on the highway from california to hawaii and so the genie says mm -hmm, mm -hmm. master for the first time in thousands of years that i've been a genie i'm going to have to reject your uh, wish because architecturally and in an engineering sense, it is simply impossible that the oceans are too deep. It, it's too difficult architecturally. There's just no way that I can make this wish come true. So for the first time, I'm, a, I'm very, very sorry, but I'm going to have to decline your wish. Please make another wish. So the surfer says, uh, okay, well, that's okay. That's strange. Uh, you know what, Jeannie, I wish that you could help me understand women. I wish to know what makes them laugh, what makes them cry, what do they think, what do they desire. I wish for you to help me understand women. <laughs> so the genie goes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, would you like that highway in two lanes or four lanes? Bam! I mean, that's a fantastic joke. Uh, and if you didn't get it, then you need to focus more. Uh, that is my favorite joke because it really captures a, a beautiful subtlety about sex differences. I hope that that made you laugh. All right, here we go. Only 4.5% of women swipe right. Oh, yeah, okay. Let's, uh, all right, let me go on, let me go on, let me go on. Oliver Benton. Uh, I don't know what the currency is. It looks like maybe Czech. Thank you so much. Are you familiar with the Gelman amnesia, amnesia effect? And do you think all the dishonest coverage of COVID and COVID-related policy might contribute to mass immunization against it? Uh, I'm, I seem to have seen it. I'm not exactly sure what it is. So unfortunately, I am not uh, ready to answer this in any uh, viable way. My apology. I hope that the, the donation that you've given, given the currency, is not too much because I... I feel personally guilty that I'm unable to answer your question. Uh, maybe if you give me a bit more uh, description, I'll be able to answer. But anyways, 
that's what it is. All right. Comlin. Let me go on here. Sorry, one second. Comlin, do you speak French? Uh, je parle très bien le français. J'ai appris le français avant d'apprendre l'anglais. Uh, au Liban, uh, nous apprenons uh, l'arabe comme notre langue maternelle et le français, c'est la deuxième langue. Étant donné que le Liban, c'est, uh, ce fut un, une colonie française. So, what did I just do? I know you might want to wipe the drool on this side of your mouth a bit. Dr. Saad is infinitely sexy. Dr. Saad speaking in impeccable international French simply puts us over the edge. Uh, what I basically said is that, yes, I speak fluent French. I learned French in Lebanon. Uh, in Lebanon, Arabic is my mother tongue. French was my second language because French used to be a French colony, a French protectorate. And so all of the, if you like, educated people in Lebanon used to speak French. Now it's kind of shifted. Now it's a lot more English, but at the time, it was a lot more French. One of the reasons why we came to Montreal, other than the fact that I had a maternal aunt here, is that it seemed like a place where it would be easy to acculturate because Montreal is French. Now, it's a very different French. It's a very different French from the one I speak. Uh, I mean, I don't speak Parisian French. I'm not from Paris, but I speak international French, right? I mean, Belgian people might speak similar to how I do. Swiss people might speak similar to how I do. Uh with all due respect to any Quebecers who are sitting here today, the Quebec joual, which is the Quebec accent, is arguably the most vile to the ear. It's unbelievable. It's I cringe when I hear it. Uh, but that's what it is. So yes, I do speak fluent French. Uh, on a scale, uh, on a scale from one to ten, I'm ten. I'm, I'm Molière. I'm Voltaire. By the way, I really enjoyed your book. It made me question a lot of things. I'm looking forward to the next and we'll read the previous one as well. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, You don't know how fulfilling it is to, you know, uh, not only do these live chats, you know, you walk down the street, every five meters, someone comes up to you full of love, full of kindness, you know, uh, and I don't mean it. It's It's not an egotistical thing. It's not a narcissistic thing, but, you know, if you're a musician, you do what you do because you want people to ultimately consume your music and love it and 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 go crazy when they hear it. And you know, I'm in the world of ideas. I create knowledge and I disseminate knowledge. And to have reached the kind of reach that I have, the kind of platform, so that you know, walking down the street becomes you know, it's like going out as the Beatles. It's a wonderful thing. So I've been very very fortunate. I love it. Uh, and you know, comments like these really. Uh, at least make it a bit more bearable to deal with the fact that all my money was stolen. And I still somehow hold out hope that the cosmos will render it uh, back to me, will return it back to me. And I remember in the last Ask Me Anything chat, some people wrote very nicely, hi, Dr. Sad, I promise you that you will get your money back. And that just made me feel so good because the sense of injustice is, is truly unbelievable. Uh, all right, here we go. Adam Schwa. Anyone brought up the Libertarian Party, Mises, uh, Mises, I'm guessing you mean Mises, the economist, to you, thoughts on it? We just took over the Libertarian Party and are going to get more attention. Uh, No one has brought it up to me. I did notice a few, I don't know exactly when, but uh, that uh, the Libertarian Party, I'm guessing of Canada, followed me on Twitter. But no, I haven't had any formal uh, approaches from anybody from that party. 
uh, he is Mizrahi. I'm guessing you're talking about me. Yes, I am Mizrahi. I'm not Ashkenazi. And even though oftentimes people say Sephardic, but the more proper term would be Mizrahi. These are the Jews that come from, uh, the, you know, the, the Arab lands. Iraqi Jew, Yemeni Jew, Syrian Jew, Egyptian Jew, Algerian Jew. Uh, those would be uh, Mizrahi Jews. Let's let's rock. Thank you so much for your uh, contribution. Oh, sorry, it scrolled down. Let me go back to it. Uh, okay, here we go. What are your hopes and dreams for where the dollar you lost and taxes go to? In other words, if you could politely request the infinitely wise overlord Justin Trudeau to do something specific with the dollars, what would it be? That's an amazing question. And actually, I've made that exact point. And in the article that I'm writing now about taxation, which maybe it will become a book, I, I make that point. I say, look, there's something diabolically banal in, in how evil it is. When you go into your account, you just press the button, all of your money disappears. And again, please forgive me. I don't mean to imply that anyone's worth work is not valuable. Everybody works hard for their money. Everybody is upset about paying taxes. But there is surely any decent person would understand, and most people do, that it's one thing to have your thoughts taxed, your words, your ideas, your humor. This book is a representation of my personhood to the world, right? When that's taxed, it's different than if I was making money as a hedge fund guy or as a banker, right? That doesn't mean I'm happy if you take my money there, but it certainly is not as personal as being taxed. And that's why, by the way, in Ireland, you don't tax book royalties. You don't tax certain forms of artistic creation because they recognize that they hold a unique value. A culture is, is, is measured, is defined by its artistic and intellectual and cultural uh, currency. So I've argued that, look, if you took all my money and I knew that it wasn't going to be just burned, the, the money that you're taking from me has a profound effect on my ability to fit to live it, the fully dignified life that I was hoping to live by working hard all my life to be able to succeed. When you come and you steal everything, and I know it's going to be squandered, it makes the pain that much stronger, right? You, you just took it and burnt it. If I knew that through this money, we are going to get noticeably closer to a cure for cancer, so that in whatever small, tiny way, my money that you stole from me contributed directly to cracking the mystery of cancer okay i'm still gonna be pissed because that doesn't why should the onus have been on me to take all of my money all of my years of hard work but at least it will be good so i think it will be something to that effect something very practical something that you know it with one swoop solves a, a scourge of humanity imagine how many people have suffered from something like cancer through all of human history. And so it will be something along those lines. But thank you. That's a great question. Okay, next. Un accent impeccable. Merci beaucoup. J'apprécie ça. Do you speak Québécois? I don't. Uh, I'm answering actually someone who's not, who didn't super chat me. So you're cheating, but I'm going to answer you. I can mimic it, but... Uh, I'm just in a sense, I'm making fun of it. I'm not, I don't, I never speak in Quebecois, although my wife, and sometimes it frustrates me and gets me a bit upset at her, she will 
modulate her French accent depending on who she's speaking to. One minute, she is Molière and Voltaire, and the next minute, she's, uh, ben, je vais te dire quelque chose, là. I'm, I just did, that's how the Quebecer speaks, okay? Uh, and I say, what the, f why did you just speak? She goes, well, you know, I'm speaking to this person, this call center. If I don't speak in that accent, then they won't uh, treat me well. Well, I don't have that chameleon ability to change my accent depending on whom I'm speaking to. I speak in the French that I speak, and that's it. That's part of my authenticity. All right, moving on. Uh, an hour and 55. We'll go maybe a bit more than two hours. So if you want to get your questions in, I better see some super chats. All right, here we go. Let's go till about 5.50. So that leaves about another nine minutes, guys. So please, up to 5.50. We got super chats. Let me just make sure. Okay, what are your hopes and dreams? Okay, I answered that one. Let me go down and look for the other people. Joey, follow-up question regarding the bias and psychometric test. Can I take the numerical average of one's response about oneself and the response of one's spouse, parents, friends, etc. about oneself? Thank you. You So if I understood what you mean is let's suppose you take the psychometric test that's supposed to measure something about you and then you get other people to answer that same psychometric test, but they're answering it with you as the target and the object. Can you add those up? I mean, that's not how it's usually done. Usually it's the individual person who is entering their scores to come up with a psychometric test. The, the challenge there, you, you raise an interesting point, but the challenge there is that oftentimes there is an incongruity between our actual self, our social self, our ideal self, the, the self that other people have of us, and these are not always congruent with one another. Uh, so I see this as a potential interesting research project. Uh, although I... So, so, for example, I've done something similar in a study. It wasn't on psychometric testing. It was on perceptions of physical attractiveness. So it was in the context of an economic game where people had to rate how, how high they score on physical attraction. So on a scale of one to seven, how much, how good looking do I think I am on a scale of whatever, one to nine. And then the player against whom I'm playing would also have to rate me. And then the experimenter who's running the experiment would also have to rate me. And then I was looking to see if there is, you know, consistency across those ratings. So there's definitely research that has looked at these types of, you know, kind of convergent validity, if you'd like, or inter-item correlation measures. Uh, but in, in your case, I'm not exactly sure why you're doing it. So whether you can aggregate them into one average or not depends on your goal. So I can't answer it in the abstract, but it's certainly an interesting proposition. Okay, let me go on. Elaine Bennis. Okay, that's, I, I'm guessing that's uh, from Seinfeld. Identity is part individual and part society like an agreement. Do you think identity is defined more from the individual or society? You mean? Do you mean self-identity, my identity as an individual? Uh, so I'm, I'm not exactly sure what you're getting at, so I'm, I'm going to answer without absolutely knowing what you mean. Uh, there are different elements of identity, as I mentioned earlier. There's my 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 uh, self-concept. There is my social self. There's my ideal self. There is my realized self. There are, so in, in self-concept theory, which deals with identity, there are all of these different measures of uh, of the self. 
some of which are driven by, as you say, in this case, you know, exogenous variables, uh, culture, society, reference group. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what else to add, but, you know, it really depends on which measure of identity you're looking at. All right, next. Ryan V is back. Thank you so much. Who would you marry, kiss, and slap if you had to pick between each? <laughs> what a cool question. Between Each between Justin Trudeau, the Malibu meditator, and a perfect clone of your perfect self. <laughs> My brain just blew up. Okay, let me read this again for anybody who's uh, listening to this live stream while driving or something. Who would you marry, kiss, and slap if you had to pick one each between Justin Trudeau, the Malibu meditator, and a perfect clone of your perfect self. Okay, well, given that I, in the morning, look at myself every day in the morning and fall in love with myself again. By the way, this is the kind of humor that's a form of full aggrandizing. That's part of my humor that my three or four haters will think that I'm being narcissistic. I'm joking. It's called levity. All right. Well, slap. So there's, there's two positive ones, marry and kiss. This might be the hardest question that's been asked today. And you've asked me a lot of tough questions. Uh, who would you marry, kiss and slap? Okay. Well, I would slap uh, Justine. Oh my God. I, I can't kiss or marry the Malibu meditator. It's tough. It's going to have to be a double. It's going to be have to be a double slap. Justin and Malibu meditator, like one one kind of domino effect slap to both of these schmucks. I shouldn't say schmuck. Malibu meditator, you know, he was a friend. I went to I went to dinner with him. He invited me on his show. We've communicated, but he just went nuts. Uh, but going nuts is not what bothered me. It's the fact that then he did a personal transgression of unfollowing me. Not because I care that he unfollowed me, but that's not what you do with friends. That's not what you do with people that you know. We agree on many more things than we disagree. You shouldn't have done that. Uh, so I would uh, kiss myself. Okay, you know what? I'm going to slap Justin. I'm going to kiss the Malibu meditator, and I'm going to marry myself. There you go. All right. Uh, we're almost out of time, guys. You got to bring in. If, if the questions don't come in before the next few minutes, we're done. All right, who would you marry? We just covered that one. We got AD. Is it amazing how Europeans admonish the U.S. over gun violence when they forgot their own history and enjoy a high standard of living because of the U.S.? Yes, well, one of the things that unifies all Europeans, Canada, is their, you know, disdain for the vulgar Americans. I, I hate that attitude, right? The United States is a wonderful culture. It's a wonderful society. It's a miracle in the history of humanity to have had a society like the United States. Does it have faults? Of course. Can Americans be louder than, uh, you know, Koreans if we can engage in some stereotyping? Yes, of course. Uh, can they be boastful and very patriotic? Yes. But guess what? Hey, America, number one. It's true. I'm not American, and I think it. So, uh, yeah, I think... Uh, Europeans should be a lot more grateful to the United States because they would be speaking different languages were it not for what the U.S. did. So I'm with you. All right, we're almost out of time. Uh, let me let's see if we have any more. Thomas Casey, 
God, thank you for your time. I'm sorry, Sheriff Trudeau stole your money. I hope this helps. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much. You know what I always fantasize about? I'm going to be very honest with you here. I fantasize that somewhere a billionaire will... I, I, by the way, I've got tens of many billionaire uh, acquaintances, not necessarily friends, that I know who are huge fans of my work. The amount of interest that they make on their money in the time that we've been doing this live chat is probably a hundred times more than all the money that was taken from Justin Trudeau and from Francois Legault. Well, I sometimes think, imagine if one of these people said, you know what? I love what you do. I respect you. I admire you. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to do what you do. I thank you for what you're doing for our society, for our children, for our university students. Let me give you four times what you lost with this guy. Hopefully that makes you better. So in a sense, when I think about cosmic justice, I kind of fantasize about, you know, the the white knight coming, or he could be any color knight coming and uh, reducing. And, I, and I, by the way, I don't mean to be presumptuous. I don't mean to imply that anybody owes me anything or that I have a sense of entitlement. But in a cosmically just world, that's how people would correct it. So if you're a billionaire, send me an email. All right, we're almost out of time. Oh, 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 I think we got one more in. So this might be the last one I do, and then we'll call it a day, guys. Ash B, I heard based Canadians bought all the handguns. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm guessing what you're talking about is that Justin Trudeau just came out with a new bill. I, I don't think it's passed yet. Uh, that basically says that, uh, you know, it'll be a lot harder, if not impossible, for Canadians to own handguns, transfer handguns, uh, you know, distribute handguns, all the rest of it. So already laws that are unbelievably strict when it comes to gun ownership are going to be apparently a lot uh, more stringent. Not good. Oh, I think we got another one. Okay, I've, now I need to. Okay, last one. Unless you keep those super chats coming, maybe I'll stay, although I'm getting hungry. Scott. Zyung, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. I'm having my young son watch classic 80s cartoon He-Man shows. What are your thoughts on classic 80s cartoons He-Man as a good role from, well, I'm sorry to say, and forgive me for not being able to offer you a good uh, answer. I've never watched that. I don't know what it is. Uh, so I can't answer it. I'm going to assume that it is a stereotypically masculine archetype, just by the name He-Man. Uh, it's probably not a uh, effeminate uh, superhero with a foulard. Foulard means like a scarf. Uh, so, hey, there's nothing wrong with having uh, male stereotypic characters and female stereotypic characters. We are a sexually reproducing species. We understand what masculinity is. We understand what femininity is. And there's nothing wrong with inculcating our children with these standards. There you have it, folks. I think I've covered everybody. If I've missed anybody, I'm infinitely sorry. I don't think I have. It has been fantastic. Two hours and six minutes. Thank you to the 200 plus people who stayed. I hope that the next one that I do, I will give several days of uh, lead for people to pencil it into their schedule because I'd love to get more people to come to these chats. Although, boy, have you challenged me with all of these incredible questions. So thank you so much. Tomorrow, I leave to Cornell uh, to see my former doctoral supervisor who's retiring. I wish you all a fantastic day. Uh, thank you for coming to this. I know that you could have been many, many places. And for the few hundred people who decided to be with me, 
I am honored that you would choose me. Uh, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. And to all those who gave super chat donations, uh, I am infinitely thankful uh, for your uh, generous spirits. Cheers, everybody. Take care. Bye.